Welcome to the Aquila Report and Weekly Review. Uh, this podcast is the opportunity for us at the Aquila Report, especially for me, Dominic Aquila and Paul Harrell, to come to you each week and to uh, just walk over and walk through the top 10 articles, which the re- readers of the Aquila Report have clicked on and read, and then we just tally up the numbers, and that's how we get our top 10. And so these are the top 10 for the uh, receipt. This podcast is on the being recorded on Monday, the uh, June 13. The, the newsletter is mailed out on Tuesday. Uh, it comes into your inbox, so that'll be receiving it on the 14th of June. Uh, so this is a prelude uh, to it, or you may be listening afterwards, so it'd be uh, so a prequel for anything else that you may, in terms of your reading. So it's always a joy to be able to just go through this list and uh, you know talk through what uh, the articles were about that just gives us a mind also of well, what ones the Quilla Report readers have appreciated and uh, wanted to linger on a little bit so that they clicked on it. So, Paul, uh, it's a great opportunity to be here for this one. I think, you know, next week the General Assembly, the PCA, will be meeting in Birmingham. So there will be committee meetings and so forth that will start on the 20th, a week from today. And then uh, the opening of General Assembly will be Tuesday evening, uh, the uh, 21st, uh, with uh, opening worship service and then like the moderator and then the uh, General Assembly will be in full session. Uh, The anticipation uh, from what we've heard so far is that this will be a very uh, heavily attended General Assembly, the uh, delegates are called commissioners uh, made up of ruling and teaching elders. And uh, the so far, somewhere close to 2,300 uh, ruling and teaching elders have registered that they will be present in Birmingham for the uh, General Assembly, which is quite high. And now, something is, is like that, uh, uh, is that an increase from from last year? Yes, last year was 2,100. Uh, these uh, are normal things in the probably last 10 years could average out to 12, 1300. So this is quite a significant uh, uptick in the number of registrations uh, for this. And part of it is some of the things that we'll be talking about in terms of the articles today um, and concerns, you know, about what's taking place in the life of the church. So uh, it's the interest has uh, you know, cer- certainly peak. So we'll see how that uh, works works out. And maybe next week we'll see what articles will be up in the podcast uh, for uh, what are the top 10 for next week will be. And that will be also another way of preluding the um, the General Assembly. So we'll, we'll come to that. But uh, Paul, it's uh, as our new practice has been, I guess, really almost a month now, uh, that if you'll read the uh, uh, 10 through 6, uh, just to give a little intro as to what is coming, and I'll read 5 through 1 and begin our discussion right. on it. It sounds good. So number 10 for last week, most read or clicked on articles at theaquilareport.com, a piece written by David Robertson. Headline here is, The Free Church General Assembly Has the Free Church Plateaued. Has the Free Church Plateaued. Then coming in at number 9, a piece by Evelyn Hamael, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, State Farm in Support for Supplying LGBTQ Books for Kids Amid Public Outcry. Number eight, 
John Brown writes, dozens of Georgia churches split from the United Methodist Church over LGBTQ issues. Then at number seven, Bruce Lowe writes, does God care what we wear at church? And then at number six, Charles Lee Irons, pastoral accommodation of same-sex relationships. Okay, well then at number five is Dear SBC, that's Southern Baptist Convention. The answer to the sex abuse crisis is not pragmatism, and that's by Josh Boyce. Uh, number four is a review of the TV uh, or the movie that was made, uh, internet movie, I think it's in the theater as well, called What is a Woman? And this is reviews by Samuel Say. Uh, number three, a new proposed Overture 23 before the PCA General Assembly by Brian Hansen. And then number two is Overture 2 uh, to the two, 2022 OPC General Assembly, which is meeting uh, this right now, in fact, uh, through tomorrow, in fact, in um, in Pennsylvania. Okay, Overture 2, uh, dealing with uh, help or hindrance with reference to the uh, sexual abuse matter, or as, as, uh, should be just abuse. And then the number one article is by Larry Ball, uh, targeting homosexual officers in the PCA again, colon, are we being too nice? And so that's where we'll begin. So this is by Larry Ball, an opinion piece, as he looks uh, forward to the PCA General Assembly, as he said, begins on June 20 uh, in Birmingham. And one of the issues that's going to be before the General Assembly will be uh, new overtures that touch on the continuing revoice matter, dealing with the homosexual movement within uh, the uh, PCA in terms of how to handle that, especially with regard to church officers. So Larry Ball writes, uh, targeting homosexual officers in the PCA again. And the reason he says again is that the uh, question is what, what will replace the fact that uh, the overtures last year that were voted on by, were approved by General Assembly and voted on by the presbyteries were not adopted, not approved. And so the, this will be another tackle, and we'll come up to that in a moment uh, when we come to article number three, give more background to that. So <clears throat> those who uh, personally know me think that I'm one of the nicest guys in the world. This is Larry speaking of himself. Uh, maybe it's just that I'm shy and backward, and they take um, that for being nice. To, to get the truth about me, we'll probably have to talk uh, to my wife and my children. The dictionary defines the word nice in terms of being pleasant and agreeable. Nice people tend to avoid a conflict in any and any confrontation, and they move through the back entrance to get to where they're going. So being nice always is not always a bad thing. To, survey, uh, to survive in the pastoral ministry today, uh, you probably need to be nice. So as he says, I was reading the proposed overtures to the 49th uh, Presbyterian Church in America General Assembly on the issue of homosexual officers. The first uh, thought that came to me in mind was the word nice. And that he's now speaking about the composition of these um, overtures and he reflects on each one of them. So he says, after a few years, the definition of side B homosexuality has finally become clearer 
And by the way, I'll just make a commentary on that real quick. And that I agree with it because when we first started all this discussion, going back to the first revoice, which was July of uh, 2018, so here we are four uh, years uh, later, the um, that the 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 words side A and side B were hardly in our vocabulary, and now they're used. And even as they were used, we had to sort of work on you know understanding the definitions. So anyway, starting again, after a few years, definition of side B homosexuality has finally become clearer. It is now rather apparent that side B is considered a state of being where of being wherein there is basically no hope of change. Orientation is fixed. Thus, in the minds of most conservative elders in the PCA, side B homosexual officers are now on, uh, are now unacceptable. Each one of the overtures seeks to restrict side B homosexuals from serving as officers in the PCA, with the exception of one, Overture 15, and I would classify them all as being indirect, rather indirect and nice in terms of how the wording is. And so remember the title is, are we being too nice in how this is um, being handled? So uh, basically Larry's thesis in this article here, which is an opinion piece is, that we are afraid to just be straightforward and say it like it is, so to speak. Uh, and so he refers to Overture 15, which is actually from his uh, presbytery, which is Westminster Presbytery, which is up northeast Tennessee and southwest uh, Virginia, covers those that uh, geographical area. Uh, Overture 15 is not considered to be nice. It uh, plainly seeks to add uh, to BCO 7-4 the following words. Men who identify as homosexual, even those who identify as homosexual and claim to practice celibacy in that, in that self-identification are disqualified from holding office in the Presbyterian Church in America. And so he says it's a very candid and to the point. This proposed change is not considered nice because it is deemed by some as being too direct by using the word homosexual. I have uh, been told that homosexuals should not alone be targeted, that there are many other sinful conditions that need to be addressed. They uh, tell me that it's unfair uh, to uh, corner homosexuals. So it's um, the that's the, the takeoff is from that, uh, Paul. And then the, we'll be talking about the other overtures in under number three, so I won't go into them right this moment. Uh, but what uh, Larry's basically saying inclusion, uh, maybe being nice and indirect is better than just saying plainly that homosexuals are not eligible to hold office in the PCA. In God's providence, we shall see, and we'll see what comes out of the uh, General Assembly uh, next week. So um, sometimes, you know, Paul, you can't be nice, you know. I, That's I right. Sort of picked in. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, no, I, I mean, the question that I – go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. No, I was just. Uh, I would just say the que the question that I have, and I, I've had this conversation before with folks. Um, another guy actually posed this to me. He asked me a question. A friend of mine said, "Hey, was Jesus a nice man?" And that and that really is. Uh, I think the answer to that question, I think, kind of reveals uh, a, a lot of how we should uh, how we should tackle these problems that we have before us. And I mean, he says, I believe the time for being nice is over. We are in an emergency and in a crisis periods. It is time to be direct and to the point. You know, and he mentions that some say that these overtures 
are, you know, if you mention homosexuality, the very thing that has disrupted the peace of the church. I mean, that's what's gone on since 2018. There have been ripple effects and it has really uh, unnerved a lot of people. But we're not we're not we don't want to corner homose- homosexuals is the, the, the term, the phrase he used. I don't know. I mean, to me, I ask myself in our culture today, what's the one thing you're not supposed to do? And the one thing right now, the sacred cow is that we, we cannot do anything to offend the uh, the the uh, LGBTQ enclave. And so in, in part of me then says, well, if that's the one thing we're not supposed to do, shouldn't the church based on Scripture be doing that, be going after the the sin of the age? And so and, and number four here, and I know we're going to pick up on this in Article 3, you mentioned it, but Overture 15, he, he says, is not considered nice. It plainly seeks to add BCO 7-4, the following words, men who identify as homosexual. Uh, even those who identify as homosexual and claim to practice celibacy in that self-identification are disqualified from holding office in the Presbyterian Church in America. That is direct, like, I think a lot of people had some issues with some of the previous overtures. They were they were against homosexuals uh, being ministers in the PCA, but they didn't kind of like some of the wording. This is direct and to the point. And if that overture would pass, which he goes on to write, I don't think that's going to make it past the overtures committee. I don't think something that direct is actually going to to do it. But but if if that were to somehow get voted out of General Assembly. And then it goes to the presbyteries. I mean, you know, that's pretty you're either for that or against that. There is no gray area. There is no nuance in that. That is either you either agree with this or you're for homosexuals, even if they claim to practice celibacy. If that's your self-identification, you're done. And you mentioned earlier, and because this is the number one article, just, you know, how we, we have these new ideas. We do have a better grasp of what side A is, of what side B is. This is fundamentally, I think an attack on our doctrinal understanding of sanctification. And uh, it's also attacking also, you know, what, what, what being above reproach means it's, it's having us to really reflect on all of that. But um, we do have a better understanding now. And so, so now is the time uh, to, to confront this problem and, and give people who are very bothered, Bothered by it, a, you know, a permanent solution or where, where we can deal with this and we can say this is what the word of God teaches. This is what it says. And this is what we believe. Right. Well, it's uh, it is uh, that that's the correct, I think, way of understanding it. And I think uh, the reason this was number one, one is that I think was an intriguing title. And also uh, Larry just lays the cards on the table as far as where his concern is as he looks at this. Uh, Overture 15 versus the other ones that we'll talk about in just a moment. So uh, just commend this article. Uh, it obviously has already uh, been read by a great number of the readers of the Quill Report, also probably forwarded to others, and we'll see how it comes up. And as he mentioned, by the way, Overture 15, the exact wording of it, was also part of the package of overtures that were considered at the General Assembly last year that we met in St. Louis and that it really was put off you know put away quickly and the um the the overtures committee chose uh another overture because there were actually more than this year uh on this matter and to work on and develop which became overtures 23 and 37 and so we'll we'll see how that goes okay well number two 
is an overture, but this time it's with the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. It's written by Mike Myers, who is pastor in Royston, Georgia. And at their General Assembly, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church has Overture 2, which is asking uh, the General Assembly to erect a study committee um, uh, with uh, on the issue of uh, abuse. Uh, that's been something that's come up quite a bit, especially in the Me Too generation. Um, the, uh, and, the, and so the question is how to go about handling that. Now, to say that one of the uh, study committee reports coming to the General Assembly, the PCA, next week, has already been published in the handbook, Is uh, was a, uh, an assembly, uh, one on the abuse um, that was written uh, by a committee that was set up a number of years ago, and they took a couple of years to take their time to make sure they uh, studied the thing well. And that will be before the General Assembly this next year to uh, either um, just to to first of all study and then to uh, either commend and or uh, to receive it. So uh, in the PCA, they don't we don't adopt reports. We uh, receive them and commend them for study. Anyway, the uh, for the uh, uh, P, uh, for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the uh, as Mike Meyer says here, the 88th General Assembly of the Orthodox Spirit Church convenes in the coming days. One of the items on the agenda is overture two from the Presbytery of Ohio, and this overture proposes the assembly take three principal actions: one, form a committee of seven to study abuse and the re and report back to the 89th Assembly, possibly with some recommendations. Number two, authorize the committee to invite Christians knowledgeable on the topic and of abuse to assist the committee as non-voting consultants and three to fund this with a certain amount of funds and so mike myers is saying before we jump on this um, movement is just when we ask some questions and also make sure that we get things um, in a correct way and one of them is to make sure that we're defining our terms uh, correctly in terms of what constitutes abuse and he goes through that in this article and he's just a, a challenge to his fellow uh, commissioners and delegate at the uh, opc assembly uh, to um, consider it it obviously the fact that it's come up that the, the pca has it uh, that the uh, general the southern baptist convention had studied it in fact is right now going through quite a uh, you know, a bit of difficulty because of some studies and uh, a re uh, investigative report that um, was done over the last couple of years that uncovered uh, quite a, a matter of uh, sexual improprieties, uh, plus other kinds of overbearing types of abuse that in the, in the life of the church that uh, the, there's been a call for clarity on the part of churches and understanding exactly what we're talking about. So uh, Mike Myers just raising some uh, concerns as we do this study that we make sure that we understand exactly what the terms are going in so that we don't just as assume a certain um, uh, definition or definitions for abuse. We need to make sure it's targeted so that we're, we're doing is, you know, capturing, reflecting um, what you know what the church needs to be about he, he's not against the study committee he's just saying let's make sure that we study it uh, carefully uh, be, uh, or define the terms carefully to give direction to the committee as it studies uh, 
Yeah, I mean, it seems like he wants the people who are going to be commissioners that want we wants them to be uh, reformed, like actually espoused reformed uh, Orthodox Presbyterian Church doctrine. Commissioners to the assembly need to ensure, he writes, that we do not make decisions because the world is watching, as I have so commonly heard, or while being unduly influenced by secular psychology. We must act in accordance with the word of God and with the mind of Christ. Now, if you drop down there to uh, proposed actions, he writes, could this committee honor Jesus Christ, help the OPC, her members, the broader church, even our world? Or could it be a hindrance? That will depend upon the men who serve on the committee. If approved, it must be populated by men resolutely committed to the sufficiency of the word of God and the gospel of free grace in Jesus Christ. They must be unwaveringly committed to the reformed doctrine, piety, ecclesiology. They must not be spastic, reflexive, or therapeutic, but biblical, analytical, and pastoral. They must not seek to subject the OPC to a governmental substructure like what is happening in the SBC. Uh, So that's kind of the gist of this article. He is, uh, like you were saying, he's just saying we need to be cautious here. And in fact, even as we're recording this podcast right now, the the, uh, OP Assembly is meeting, and that will be one of the things that's on their agenda. If it's not today, definitely uh, tomorrow, uh, because before their adjournment. So we'll by maybe here in a few hours, we'll have a sense as to direction that the OPC, a General Assembly, um, has to, chosen to take. Okay, well, number three, we've been talking about um, already because it deals with one of those overtures that we talked about that um, that uh, that. Uh, Larry Ball said might be too nice. Uh, new Overture 23, and the reason for the word new is that last year there was an Overture 23, uh, and as the Overtures come in each year, they're labeled, you know, they're numbered as they come in, one, two, three, four, and it just so happens that this of those committee, uh, those Overtures that have come in, it got the it was a 23rd overture to show up. So it's the new overture 23. It doesn't relate at all to last year's. And so just important that we realize that. So if this is the one that is chosen to work on it, then we would have another overture 23 to vote on it in the general assembly. So the new proposed overture 23 is before the PCA general assembly is written by Brian Hansen. Uh, the proposed over 23 fits the flow of the BCO chapter 16 uh, thematically, linguistically, and logically. Uh, and what Bryant Hansen has uh, proposed in this is that the wording uh, for uh, this, which is um, uh, very short as well, so just let me uh, read it. Those whom God calls, but, oh, let me back up. Uh, some it, it uh, it'll be in the Book of Church Order is proposed to be a new chapter, of uh, a, a new paragraph in Chapter 16. There are three paragraphs now, add a fourth, and this would be then BCO 16-4. Those whom God calls to bear office in His church shall demonstrate maturity of faith and growing conformity to Jesus Christ. While these office bearers will see spiritual perfection only in glory. They will continue in this life to confess and to mortify remaining sins. Thus, those who identify or describe themselves according to their specific sins or who teach that it's acceptable for Christians to identify or describe themselves in such a manner uh, shall not be approved for service by any court of Christ's church. So that's the simple proposal 
you know, at least easy, simple in the sense of writing the words. Uh, and so what Bryant is arguing for is that this be the one that the General Assembly Overtures Committee, which has that responsibility to um, undertake or to review uh, and then propose something to the floor of General Assembly, uh, will begin with. And, uh, and he says that having learned the lessons from um, last year and uh, some of the criticism of the structure of that, of the former Overture 23, that the um, this one is much broader in its intent uh, from his what he argues. And it um, it's saying it's not only dealing with the matter of homosexuality, but it's any sin that a person feels he needs to describe himself as, as he's uh, seeking to be an officer in the church, a, a deacon, an elder or a minister, that uh, if that sin um, is, is so strong in his life that it uh, he becomes identified with it and he's not mortifying it, that is putting it to death, then uh, most likely he shouldn't be, not most likely, he shouldn't be an officer in the church. So that's the background to this. I think, it, like I said, is part of the, I don't know if that would be considered nice compared to what uh, uh, Larry is defining it as, but that's at least what he is uh, alleging. By the way, there, there are two overtures that are almost identical. There's this one, this came from Southeast Alabama Presbytery right, and sent up to the General Assembly. The other one is overture, uh, 20, and it was proposed by the uh, Northwest Georgia Presbytery, and they're just a couple of words different between them. They both basically uh, articulate the same thing instead of just saying focusing on uh, homosexuality or talking about uh, anything that may grasp a person so much that he identifies with that particular sin, and uh, he's not dealing with it, it's not mortifying, and he's not seeing any uh, sanctification improvement, if you would, then he shouldn't be considered uh, for uh, church office. Uh, the Then there's another one that's from P Pittsburgh Presbytery, which is 29, and I jumped ahead, there's one that there's also 16, which is, I mean, number 11, which is from Hills and Plains. And those two are, are somewhat structured differently the same end, but their focus is primarily on the area of homosexuality. This uh, this uh, one and uh, one from Northwest Georgia doesn't even mention that. It talks about just the whole notion of uh, what does it mean to be above reproach and to be an elder uh, or a church officer. So uh, we'll see how the you know the overtures committee chooses to. Um, you know, put put the thing together so that it brings a recommendation to the floor. Uh, so Brian's article, though, touched nerve and it came up as number three. This uh, was one of my this was the my favorite part of the article because it just sparked a story. Um, most people, he writes, have heard of the elephant in the room as a reference to a topic or issue that no one really wants to name, but that everyone knows is present. Everyone steps around the elephant, ensuring that the elephant is given plenty of space. This behavior is actually very effective in guaranteeing the elephant will never be addressed. Leave the elephant in the room long enough and the room will not be will not be habitable. 
Some might suggest just shoving out the elephant manure to make the room as livable as possible. We all know that is a losing proposition. So I always overheard a conversation the other day about this obvious divide right now. The, the people that are on the side B train, the people that are not, and how it doesn't get talked about. It doesn't really seem to get talked about, uh, uh, you know, at, at, at let's say just at the presbytery level that there that there is this elephant in the room per se and the question was raised well why is that and the answer was because revolutions and coups must not be spoken of in public (laughs) (laughs) and i just thought wow you know that kind of uh that kind of cuts uh that's what that's an interesting theory i should say but that's what this little article reminded me right it really is and so we uh, hope you know we'll you know, we'll know pretty soon within the oh, next eight days anyway from this podcast uh, where uh, what the Overtures Committee is going to recommend the General Assembly, and that'll be what will be debated on the floor. Uh, but even that we won't know until the uh, week from Thursday, because that's the day that the Overtures Committee makes its report on the floor of General Assembly. So uh, we'll see how that all works out. Um, number four is a review of what is a woman uh, that says uh, by Samuel Say, uh, the Daily Wire has been a favorite news outlet, he says, for several years. Uh, however, their latest documentary, What is a Woman, is maybe the most important content that uh, they've produced so far. The documentary features the Daily Newswire's author and uh, podcast host, Mark, Matt Welsh, uh, asking experts and average people, a seemingly simple question, what is a woman? And just in case uh, you've been Rip Van Winkle and asleep, you know, that that question was asked by a senator uh, in the confirmation uh, for the last um, uh, Supreme Court justice. And uh, when asked, she says, I can't answer that. I'm not a biologist. And so that sort of opened up a whole uh, can of worms and people wondering, well, then how do we go about it? So that's the background to the title, What is a Woman? Uh, so he says, predictably, however, most of the so-called experts and average people in the documentary either dismiss the question or struggle to come up with an answer. So one of the experts in the documentary is a, a female therapist who identifies as non-binary. And when Walsh asks her, her titular question, uh, the um, she says, I'm not a woman, so I can't really answer that. Uh, so the he even resorts to um, Samuel say actually his comment to uh, to the Arnold Schwarzenegger's 1990 movie Kindergarten Cops when a toddler says boys have penis and girls have vagina. So what is a woman confirms gender theorists are not any smarter than toddlers. And uh, so it's interesting. So here's the opportunity for us to hear this review. If you haven't seen uh, the the um, documentary, then uh, you at least get this review uh, written by Samuel Say. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet, but it is on my short list of things to do. I'm really busy right now, but I have seen a lot of clips of this uh, on social media and things like that. Samuel Say writes the most poignant scene for him in the entire documentary is when Scott Kelly Nugent, the transgender founder of Trey Voices, raises her arm to reveal the severe scars and says, quote, for the first time in history, a marginalized group has a huge dollar sign on top of their head. 
We have five children's hospitals in the United States promoting that, her scars. That's uh, a, a phalloplasty. That's a bottom surgery, a surgical operation where part of a woman's abdomen, leg, or arm is removed to create the male organ. We have five children's hospitals in the United States telling girls they can be boys at $70,000 a pop in surgery, and that has a 67% complication rate that will kill me from infection. And actually, if you, re- if you look up the reverse, and now this is just me talking, so that's, that's kind of the crux of the article, and, and this doesn't even talk about how you know, planned parenthood is also really just giving people testosterone, which um, the, to, these, uh, to these women that are trying to become men. And uh, if you do more research in this, Dominic, what I have realized is obviously the testosterone has all of these side effects, but a lot of these side effects are, are drugs, uh, I'm sorry, are rage from the drugs that these people are on. They're hopped up on these drugs. So a lot of these people at protests that we see and everything else, and you think, wow, how did it get so bad? A lot of these people are taking testosterone, and it's 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 acting like, uh, you know, similar. I'm not going to say it's 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 the same thing as meth, but you know, when you think of somebody, oh, if somebody's on meth, they're harder to deal with, right? They don't feel. I mean, that this is the same concept, if you will. They're not in their right mind, and um, and and there's all kinds of complications that this movie goes goes on, and then um. I looked up and do this at your own risk, but I, I looked up the what what is this bottom surgery if you're talking about a, a man who wants to be a quote woman and uh, in the removal process and how how that goes and what they're what they're forming the organ into. And if there's not enough of the organ, they go ahead and and use the colon. That's one of these procedures. And then it dawned on me that this is really uh, nothing's new under the sun. And with some of these surgeries, it's just, to, for lack of a better term, it's just sodomy with extra steps. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it'll uh, just, uh, it, again, it's intriguing that that would uh, come up. And now, again, notice, uh, you know, the, the pattern that's before us. And these, all speaking of things of the church, that we're dealing with the homosexual reality, the um, the question of abuse, we uh, the you know, question of uh, maybe even mutilation when you talk about what is a woman, because we're trying to fit that into a the- theoretical construct as opposed to a, a uh, historical, physical and uh, ontological context, male and female. And uh, so that brings us then to number five, because it continues this whole thing of what we saw in number two with reference to the uh, study of, of abuse. And that is uh, article by... Um, Josh Boyce, who he says, Dear SBC, that is Southern Baptist Convention, the answer to the sex abuse crisis is not pragmatism. And uh, he reports that over the last few years, we witnessed a barrage of news stories emerge from the Southern Baptist Convention that point to sex scandals, misconduct, and abuse. In 2019, the Houston Chronicle report shocked the SBC world. It revealed 700 cases that span over a 20-year period which is quite astounding, uh, even for a large uh, denomination. Uh, he says, although I'm no longer pastor church uh, of church within the SBC, I speak as a pastor who spent many years in the SBC. <clears throat> so in this um, article, then he uh, speaks on Sunday, May 22, the report from Guidepost, which is a group they was hired to investigate um just a whole matter within the Southern Baptist Convention, was published and made available to the world. Needless to say, it was a lengthy, detailed bombshell report 
containing harmful stories of abuse of abuse victims and accusations against public figures and well-known pastors within the SBC. Since the report was published, there have been many different responses. Obviously, pastors and leaders within the SBC are trying to process this news just a few weeks prior to the decisive presidential election, referring to the election of the um, leader for the year this at the next uh, meeting of the convention, which is meeting in Anaheim, California. And so at this crisis moment, <clears throat> the SBC can make the right choices to move in the direction of biblical sufficiency, or the convention can choose to walk down the pathway of pragmatism. And that one decision will change the future of the SBC. And so what uh, Boyce is really asking him to do is the um, should, because of their long history of pragmatism, not only is the SBC the largest Protestant denomination, uh, with some 47,000 churches. It's also the most pragmatic denomination. In 1954, the SBC adopted a growth campaign under the slogan, Million More in 54, and the results were extremely harmful. Uh, we go back and read that in the history. So he's talking about pragmatism as a philosophical tradition, very broadly understands knowing the world in an inseparable way, uh, from, uh, inseparable from agency, um, within it. Uh, the, this general idea has attracted a remarkably rich and at times contrary range of interpretations, including that all philosophical concepts should be tested via scientific experimentation, that a claim, if it is true, if and only it is useful. So pragmatism is uh, the ends justify the means because it has something has to be useful and if it can't be immediately useful, then it has no quality and so forth. So what he Boyce is arguing for is to be biblical. Uh, if we were talking Presbyterian, we'd add the word confessional as well. And in this article, he's challenging them to test things against the scriptures, not just against experimentation, the experimental, the experiential. Uh, this touches a lot with the same thing that Mike uh, Myers was saying in an article number two, uh, he wants to challenge the OPC ahead of time, not to be pragmatic, but to use the biblical and confessional standards to look forward. So uh, it's a good article challenging them. I believe, by the way, in terms of just time spot, that the uh, Southern Baptist Convention meeting in Anaheim uh, next, beginning next week as well, it almost is concurrent with the same time as the PCA's meeting in Birmingham. Yeah, towards the uh, middle of the article, in the wake of the Houston Chronicle report, Beth Moore entered the conversation with an argument that women needed more that women needed more women in places of leadership so that they could find help in moments of crisis. Moore spoke in Dallas at the ERLC's Caringwell Conference. This article does have a lot of historical references about you know what has brought the SBC to that point. So if you want to deep dive on it, matter of fact, I was talking to a guy. Yeah, the other day about this scandal, he says, well, was there an article? Uh, has there been an article on the Aquila report yet? And I said, well, I uh, I looked at the top 10 list and I said, matter of fact, you know, if you want to hear it is. So uh, this is a good, um, you know, kind of uh, just just a good way. If you've been ignoring the the controversy and what's been happening in the last two weeks, this will kind of get you up to speed. No problem. Mm -hmm. Yes, it will. Okay, well, move from that call about uh, not being pragmatic to another article that calls the same way, but it's not 
putting the responsibility or at least encouraging or exhorting pastors and maybe church leaders as well. And it's titled uh, Pastoral Accommodation of Same-Sex Relationships, a Critique in Light of 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. So this is uh, by um, uh, Charles Lee Irons. Uh, introduction, he says, with increasing pressure from the culture to revise the traditional moral disapproval of same-sex relations, uh, evangelicals are wrestling with how the church ought to treat some same-sex attracted, uh, uh, treat same-sex attracted Christians, a shift toward great, greater openness and taking place, taking place among other evangelical churches committed to the authority of scripture as the only infallible rule of faith and life, doctrine and life. A a uh, small but growing number of evangelical pastors and congregations have shifted from holding that same-sex activity is irreconcilable with commitment to Christ uh, to allowing committed same-sex relationships within their membership. And so there has been that shift, and that's partly where you always start out with what we've now now calling side B, uh, accommodation up to a certain point. And if you go the whole way of of accepting same-sex marriage and uh, membership and church offices, uh, then that's side A, so that there's no doubt, no distinctions anymore made. Uh, you're just a person who happens to either be heterosexual or homosexual, and you're in the church. So that's side A. Uh, so it, what um, uh, Irons is arguing for here is that we not accommodate, that we hold firmly to what the uh, uh, scripture is teaching with regard to morality. Uh, and he points to the context of first Corinthians. Uh, I mean, yeah, first uh, Corinthians chapters um, five and six, particularly, but before he gets there, he gives a broader context uh, review all the way back to the beginning of the book. And so when he gets into chapters five and six, he look, focuses on various words that are used, the construct of the sentences, uh, doing using the, the Greek and expanding on it as to uh, where what the words mean, how it was used in uh, under in the Septuagint, because that was the Hebrew translate the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, um, and uh, what it. Um, what it brings us um, brings us up to date. So from that, he says that what is it that God, uh, Christ is calling us to? What is the norm in Scripture uh, once we're called as believers? And he says we're called from the old life to the new creation. And what is the new creation like? And he refers to uh, specifically 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, where he says we've been washed, you've been sanctified, you were justified. And he explains those words to show that we're not giving any uh, particular orders as Paul is laying down a technical uh, means. We should not suppose that justification comes after washing and definitive sanctification. Instead, he sees these three terms that are used, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, are thrown together to highlight a full-orbed nature of the gospel as including not only the forensic, that is the legal, but also the transformative uh, uh, dimensions. Uh, it is a full salvation that we have in Christ. We are not only justified, that is deemed righteous because of Christ, we are also washed and set free from the dominion of sin and set apart uh, as holy to God. 
So in that case, and uh, we, when we see that kind of transformation, instead of falling prey to the things of the world and letting the world define things, which would be the more pragmatic approach, uh, easy to accommodate to, and probably in terms of just getting along, it would probably be easier. Uh, he says that the scripture is calling us to something which is very distinct, uh, transformative uh, because of our relationship to Christ. And so it's a really, it's a long article, but I think very well worth um, their attention uh, to make, uh, you know, make it clear that we can have accommodation to that which uh, God has made so explicit uh, as uh, being contrary to what it is to be in relationship with him and to have this uh, particular same-sex relationships and anything that is uh, abnormal within the sexual relationship uh, part of life. So uh, really encourage you to come to grips with that. Yeah, yes, this is from the article. This is the pastoral accommodation approach to homosexuality. Accommodation is not affirmation. Those adopting this position do not endorse homosexuality as positively good and intended by the creator. They acknowledge that homosexuality is the result of the fall. They also generally refrain from speaking of same-sex marriage. They want the church to uphold the creation ordinance of opposite-sex marriage and the church's traditional sexual ethic, but they also want the church to be pastorally sensitive, adopting a compassionate embrace rather than driving such people away from the church. As attractive as such an approach may be to some, it runs up against a major hurdle, the apparent teaching of Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. So that'll give you just a little bit uh, more information about uh, what the uh, article is covering. Yes, and it's a very engaging one. You'll find it uh, very helpful in terms of the explanation of the original from the original language put in the context so it's not just a passing fancy. Well, we move and change a little bit in terms of the dynamics to the next article. Does God care what we wear at church? Uh, should dress divide us? And uh, the one pull quote that I have here is uh, in Revelation 19.8. We are told that it's not our physical clothes that Jesus sees, uh, but our righteous deeds. By the way, that's a scene in Revelation 19 of the people of God gathered before the throne. So what does he see? He um, sees our righteous deeds. The righteous acts of the saints are the clothes of the church. So with every motive of love that is exercised in choosing what to wear, whether casual or formal, we are putting on the true clothes of the church. This, remember, is what Jesus sees. So the, the premise is it's uh, not so much then that uh, what we wear is going to include us or exclude us. So whether we are have our Sunday go to meet and close or whether we're a uh, little dressed down from that, the point is, is that the uh, Bruce uh, makes here is that we are to dress with the knowledge and with the reference uh, to um, what Christ is seeing in us, that uh, the concept of dr being dressed is an interesting thing that throughout the scripture, you, you have the first time that we see um, Adam and Eve in their in the garden in a brand new relationship as uh, Adam was created and then Eve was made from the um, rib of Adam they were both in the garden and Genesis 2:25 says they were both naked and not ashamed and the very first thing that happens after they eat the forbidden fruit 
it says, and their eyes were opened. This is in Genesis 3, 8. And they saw they were naked and they clothed themselves. What they made fig leaves to uh, cover themselves because they were naked, it says. And when God came walking in the garden, they heard him and they ran and hid themselves because they were naked. When Even though they were covered with the uh, dress, the new outfit that they had made out of fig leaves. And before God puts them out of the garden, we read in Genesis 3.21 that he uh, took off the fig leaves and he dressed them in animal skins, indicating that he was going to dress them. So whether or not the, the animal skins were the Gucci of the day or whatever, the the style of the time, it, the point is, is that God dressed them because it was anticipating the dressing that we would have in the righteousness of Christ and so forth. So there's a theme that you have throughout the scripture. And uh, so the um, uh, uh, Bruce Lowe is using that analogy to say the issue. So it's not the physical clothes we're wearing. Uh, that's important. It's more the mindset. It's always the desire of the heart. It's the dressing in a way that's appropriate for us to demonstrate our relationship with God, and that's the one that's really significant. So it's just a challenging thing. So yes, it deals with how do we look in church, but also how does it look uh, when we dress with Christ? I just thought of one more you know, verse that came in, um, and it's usually attributed to when how Augustine was uh, converted. Uh, God used the scripture is uh, uh, Romans 13. 14 that uh, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, that is dress yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. In other words, we should be dressed, always decked out in Jesus and the garb of our righteousness that he gives to us. So it's a helpful thing in terms of how we present ourselves uh, from the heart to the Lord and whether we're in church or whether we're in the world, uh, it's important that we represent uh, the righteousness of Christ. I absolutely agree. Um, this was, uh, you know, it, it's an interesting article. The headline certainly get um, the headline certainly drives the clicks here. You know, does God care what we wear at church? Well, I want to know. I want to know what Bruce Lowe has to say about that. Uh, so, you know, that's uh, it's a good read. I'm, I'm glad he wrote the article. I'm glad it made the top ten. Yes. Okay. Well, now moving to number eight, uh, dozens of Georgia churches split from United Methodist Church over LGBTQ issues. Uh, This is by John uh, John Brown, who uh, reports uh, specifically of the Georgia uh, conference of the, the United Methodist Church. A number a couple of years ago, in fact, let's say two, three years ago now, It says, during a special session in 2019, the UMC, that's United Methodist Church, adopted a disaffiliation agreement allowing churches to leave the nomination through the end of 2023, quote, for reasons of conscience regarding a change in the requirements and provisions of the Book of Discipline related to the practice of homosexuality or the ordination or marriage of self-avowed practicing homosexuals as resolved and adopted by the 2019 general conference or the actions or inactions of its annual conference related to these issues, which follows. So it's a long sentence to say 
that in 2019, the United Methodist Church, which is basically what they would call in church governance, a hierarchical, that is from top down, you've got uh, bishops and superintendents and so forth that uh, oversee things and they move pastors around and, and the church, at least in the, the American experience of it. And um, the for many years, the Methodist Church had already adopted uh, a side B um, sense uh, definition of things for the church going back many years. And they had been attempts to finally come to a side A. They finally in 2019 got there. And the, so this is, again, one of those things that, OK, you can mark this down now, uh, Paul. Uh, the slippery slope took us, <laughs> that Paul and yep. I always have. But we're in the podcast. Will the first raising of slippery slope come? Three, 53 minutes or so. Okay. <laughs> okay. So we, we made it a long time this time. We sure did. Well, that's because it was the eighth article. See? <laughs> so, but this one, it, it, the slippery slope finally got to the bottom of the slope. And so the point is that the, the, the United Methodist structure, internal structure, says that the property really belongs to the uh, to the denomination. So no matter, even though the me- members uh, in the pew of a local church are the ones that uh, raise the money and built buildings and maintains the buildings and that kind of thing, that uh, that it's all held in trust for the denomination. So knowing that this is going to be a breaking issue because of how tense it is, and it's been true, by the way, in almost all, every denomination that's gone through this, um, I'm trying to think of one it really didn't affect. And uh, and this is over the last 70, 80 years that they said, OK, with this decision, we will come up with this uh, uh, disaffiliation agreement. In other words, we will work together with those who believe that the LGBTQ issue is important and we want to maintain it. We believe the church should hold to it. Those that do not believe the LGBTQ issues should be part of the church. All right. Let's agree. We'll we United Methodists have arrived at this point, but let's we're not going to hold you um, hostage to that. And we'll have this disaffiliation. I think that's the first time I've really heard that phrase being used. So um, each conference, w- which would be like their their district, uh, usually is based on the state they're in, uh, will make its decision. And you have up till 2023. Uh, to because of reasons of conscience take this action. So that's the background. So just recently, 70 churches in the Georgia Conference of the United Methodist Church uh, have separated over this, and there'll probably be others. They haven't probably finished uh, in that. And um, the North and the North Georgia Conference, as what even the whole Georgia Conference, um, voted last Thursday, just a couple of weeks ago, to allow the churches. Um, mostly within the rural areas to disaffiliate with the United Methodist Church. So that's what this is about. And uh, we see once again that the uh, the LGBTQ issues uh, are divisive. They, there's no clear-cut thing. And so let's go back to Article 1 here, Paul. It says, you know, uh, there's no nice way to say this. You either for or against it. And I think that's what we see here. And so whether there's a reformed background, whether it's a uh, cultural heritage coming from a certain 
part of the world or whatever, uh, th this is probably the most divisive issue that we see within the life of the church, at least in the last 80 years. It absolutely is. In my hometown here in Arkansas, the United Methodist Church uh, is, in fact, leaving the United Methodist Church here. They are disaffiliating, uh, from what I can tell. And, uh, you know, I think the the majority of the congregation is going to agree. So, I, first of all, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for these 19 churches in Georgia. Praise the Lord for any church, Methodist church. Who that's seventy church, seventy churches in Georgia. Seventy churches. It's it's in in any church that does this, that's going to continue to do this through twenty twenty three. Um, I mean, the chips are all on the table, or, or rather, the cards are all on the table. Everybody knows where everybody stands, and so now it's it's to me, I just see it as such a positive thing that that they are making this uh, decision. They are. I mean, it's a teaching opportunity for maybe members in these congregations that haven't wanted to confront what the Bible actually says uh, about this. Now, the other thing that is going on, if you have room in your prayer life for the United Methodists and and, or, and the people who are now leaving, is their buildings. Um, there's, in, from my understanding, and I could be wrong, you know, the United Methodist Church are the ones that own a lot of this property. So, I know there's a, there's a lot of these people, uh, these churches that are leaving. They've they've got to get legal counsel. They got to get attorneys to to try to figure out how they can keep their property and keep their building. Uh, Part of it, the disaffiliation process is that they can keep their property. You just, okay, good. You definitely have to work out uh, the plans. But that was the the whole idea before, uh, because it was a top down hierarchical structure. It was, um, you know. Uh, you know, it was different. It was difficult to uh, to be able to move out. You had to go through a lot of legal processes. But the disaffiliation said, if you choose to leave, that you can't, because of conscience, stay with this new uh, LGBTQ view that we have now in the United Methodist Church. Then you'll be free to go. Okay, so there is some method for them to keep their property. Yes, That's, they have that old agreements worked me. out. In fact, they're also because okay. they, they have a quite a bit of uh, assets, uh, financial assets that the denomination has and they're going to uh, give this whatever new affiliation group a chunk of that as well so they're not only going to keep their property they'll get some uh, of the assets that will if they form another denomination yeah i was talking to my and then this is this is hindsight but i was talking to my my uh, mother this morning who was who was raised uh methodist and he she quoted we we're talking about this issue and she quoted uh, my late grandfather, who said when when they when their Methodist church became United Methodist, he was a skeptic. And he said, I don't know if this is going to end very well, is the <laughs> quote that I got this morning. So uh, I guess he was right. Right. And by the way, that United <laughs> came from the United Brethren Church. So the Brethren uh, Church and the Methodist Church, uh, which called, was uh, formerly called the Methodist Episcopal Church in America. Uh, was uh, uh, brought about that union, and began, they took the United from the United Brethren. Both of them have a Wesleyan background, so that's the common commonality. Uh, but just chose different uh, denominational labels, and so um, they. But anyway, they merged, and that's when they took the word United into United Methodist Church. So that's what your grandfather was probably referring to, because the yes, Brethren sir. Church was theologically different more uh on the liberal side of things at that time 
uh, for uh, for the church. So anyway, the um, it's what's happening. Um, we're seeing that with the Reformed Church in America. We've seen it with the Christian Reformed Church and both just had their respective synods and uh, they're dividing um, even as we speak. And that's how we have Methodist uh, Church and many others, um, fortunately. Okay, the uh, number uh, ninth article is takes more in the secular realm a division that's and ra- this whole issue of LGBTQ uh, is raised with uh, reference to uh, problem that State Farm had, and so is that the, the it's not the secular section is, and business community is not untouched by these things. It says following an outcry, uh, should say uh, this is by Evelyn uh, Homolet um, that following public outcry, State Farm Insurance said it has ended a support project designed to place gender ideology books in children's schools and in libraries. A leaked uh, State Farm email from January addressed to the insurer's agents in Florida asked for volunteers to donate uh, leftist gender ideology children's books uh, to local schools, community centers, and libraries to help, quote, increase representation of LGBTQ books and support our communities in uh, having challenging, important, and empowering uh, conversations with children uh, age five and plus. So that was uh, something that was appeared to be an initiative taken up by State Farm Insurance. Uh, once the email was leaked it got into it and uh, so insurance agents were being pelted and and inundated with uh, calls and emails and such from their clients and so the then the agents had to contact the home office and say what's going on and what's happening here and so the um, it says due to the media exposure and ensuing public backlash state farm claims it is no longer affiliated with gender cool project which is a name of a project, Cool, Gender Cool, uh, in distributing the LGBTQ literature to schools, libraries, saying conversations about gender and identity should happen in the home with parents. It adds, we don't support required curriculum in schools on this topic. Uh, that's um, what, of course, was happening since I'm living in the state of Florida right now, that with the, uh, the way the LGBTQ community assaulted the legislature here on the same principle where they were saying don't say gay uh, legislation which was not that uh it was the same principle that uh, we see here with state farm saying we're uh, let let the parents take care of it especially in children of uh from kindergarten through third grade and the law was passed here so uh, this is uh something that's going outside the church and it's in the culture itself uh and state farm is now feeling the um backside of that in fact and then criticized by the lgbtq community uh, for mm-hmm. caving in what uh, he this one guy called anti-lgbtq extremists and of abandoning a project that provided what he said are age-appropriate materials to children yeah i mean you know gender cool you know you heard that old saying if everybody was jumping off a bridge would you do it too and we can replace that what with you know if if it's the cool thing to do if if everybody is into grooming and the sexual exploitation of children 
Uh, would you do it too? And the answer for corporate America is yes. Now, my my hope here, this little shining light of hope, is that these corporations will realize that when they do something like this, people call State Farm, who the people who disagree with with giving kids books about uh, the the trans movement and you know, giving kids about sex at all is is not a good thing. And the people who disagree that they call State Farm, they canceled their policies. This happened in droves. I mean, they, people canceled their policies. And then when State Farm announced to try to stem the bleeding, they say, we're not going to do this anymore. We disassociate. Well, then that made the LGBTQ apparatus in this country angry. And they called and canceled their policies with State Farm that they had. So I hope these corporations realize that when you go down this path of lunacy uh, and you try to uh, appease the totalitarian left that you may just end up with no customers at all on either side of the political aisle. Exactly. Well, it's the, what we're now the new vernacular and new word that I guess we have for 22 uh, is being woke, uh, being woke. You, you probably lose on all sides eventually. So you need to be, uh, be careful. And then we come to our 10th uh, article in the weekly review of the quote report and weekly review and that is uh by robert uh david robertson uh, the free church general assembly this is in scotland has the free church plateaued uh, the free church general assembly was just um has just met now a couple of weeks ago and maybe over the last couple of weeks there are a number of things that we had in the top 10 from the church of scotland which is the dominant or state church and um in, in uh, Scotland. The Free Church was a break off from the Church of Scotland back in the 1840s uh, because of some uh, internal theological issues, and they've both remained sort of growing side by side. Uh, the Church of Scotland has, over these last years, become more like what we just described with the Methodist uh, Church, and uh, that has bought into the whole LGBTQ analogy, and that this last General Assembly finally approved uh, the allow for ministers in the Church of Scotland to perform same-sex uh, marriages, and there can be also same-sex um, uh, pastors so and elders. So the, uh, the now we're dealing with a totally different thing. Here's just the free church as it plateaued, and David Robertson uh, is a minister within that denomination, and he sort of uh, takes a historian and sort of back you know look at the glance and what do the statistics say and so forth and it's good for churches to look at their direction and what is taking place in the life of the church so it says it was interesting at this last general assembly to observe new faces increased diversity and general sense of unity i found the missions report a particular encouragement what really struck me was a comment from neil mcmillan uh, suggesting that the free church had plateaued uh, there are areas where the church is growing, and that is uh, now significantly engaging in church planning, but there are also areas in decline. Only Seventh-day Adventists and the free church of the denominations that were uh, founded pre-1900 uh, are growing in um, in UK today, and he gives a link to, to that, and yet it is not enough. There are some major areas which the free church needs to address immediately. It is it is to move on from being just maintaining maintaining itself 
to being a major force for the kingdom of Christ in Scotland. The free church will not survive by planning 30 new churches by 2030. Our vision should be much bigger than that. We need to plant new churches, revitalize old ones, and even close some. Uh, we have to rethink our approach to education, the poor, the, and the culture, and other churches. Unless we engage with these issues, I suspect that the plateau will soon turn to decline. And then he explains and goes through a number of things uh, that uh, the church needs to look at. The article will make itself plain to you on that regard. Uh, this is uh, true of any human organization of which the church, even though it's the church of Christ, but in its visible sense, it's also a human part and we're part of it and uh, we need to have vision and so forth. And so sometimes we can get a local church, uh, maybe a regional church or else even the denominational uh, group of churches can uh, lose perspective and become uh, satisfied with where things are. And if you become satisfied over a while period of time, that means there will be no growth and there will be eventually decline. That will uh, be sort of a natural thing that happens even in our, you know, physically to ourselves. We get we're young and we think we can do a lot of things and get older and we're not able to do as much. So uh, just as a warning uh, to his church that he loves and he's a part of, uh, we shouldn't be satisfied with just a few churches being planted and uh, how we go about the mission of the church and of discipling the nations. Yeah, that we have this uh, this part here about the, the growth. Uh, some of our growth is coming from other churches, especially the Church of Scotland. Now, that's interesting, right? We talked about that. We know what the Church of Scotland has been doing and what they just did. Uh, how many free church congregations are seeing growth through conversions, especially from the world? He asks. There's no use in training lots of chiefs if there are no Indians. So, if you uh, if you aren't familiar with the free church, uh, like uh, like me, like I, I like I wasn't, uh, this is a good article. Yeah, I, I think it's helpful to be aware that the their commonality. So we have our cultural issues and nationalistic. Part of it is that since. Um, the cool report and it has a lot of focus with the presbyterianism that that's uh, the mothership and so we look over to that uh, country in terms of where the westminster confession came from and uh, it, now they didn't produce it itself but they adopted it and uh, as missions were taking place and the uh, developing and uh, new places were found and developed and churches planted they brought not only the bible but the confession as well well, there you are, the top 10 for this week, um, Monday, June 13th. Tomorrow on the 14th, you'll receive this top 10 list. If you're listening to this beforehand, you've hopefully been helped in the understanding what is going on uh, and or anticipate what's going to come. And if you're listening to this afterwards, and you can uh, sort of be refined and think, yeah, that's I agree with that. I understood. That's what I read. Or I need to go back and read it. But whatever it is, we're thankful that you have, and we trust that you will take the time to go daily and just uh, peruse or drill through the cool report, see what articles are there, and maybe uh, you become an assistant to helping what becomes the top 10 for the following week. And so we appreciate you listening to this podcast, and we look forward to the next ones. Until then, the Lord bless you.